Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Story. I, of course, am Yeshri Upasani, the paranormal, supernatural, most of the time believer. And I'm Arvaganathan, the total non-believer and skeptic of everything supernatural. Now, before I even begin to say anything, I would like to apologize preemptively about the weird audio on this episode. We are experiencing some technical difficulties, and we are not quite sure what's happening. Um, but if this is the first episode of ours that you're listening to, which I promise we normally do not have these issues, um, welcome. This is the podcast where we talk about the true cases that inspired famous horror movies. But this season, we're shaking things up a little bit, and instead of talking about our usual ghosts, demons, and poltergeists, we're taking a stab. At, the, at all the supernatural creatures that keep us up at night. In today's episode, we're going to be exploring the fanged, blood-sucking monsters that have been the subject of every 1920s nightmare and 2000s fanfiction. That's right, today we're going to talk about vampires. And while we're going to be talking about a lot of other vampire-related movies today, we wanted to use this time to highlight one of our favorite vampire-related movies, A Woman Walks Home Alone at Night. It's a Persian film that was released on November 21st, 2014. The movie stars Sheila Vaughn, Arash Marandi, and follows a skateboarding vampire girl who preys on disrespectful men. Seriously, guys, this movie is an absolute masterpiece. Now, before we go into the origins of vampires, as well as some real-life cases, we wanted to remind you guys that this season we are donating all of our funds to the National Women's Law Center to help empower women through legal action. Also, don't forget to follow us at Behind the Story on Instagram with the period between the I and N, and on Twitter with an underscore between the I and N. And follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast. And now, let's get on with the episode. Alright, so first we're going to start talking about a little bit of origins. And before I get into like a lot of the origins of vampires themselves, I wanted to talk about the vampire that I feel like most of you probably think of when, when I say the word vampire. Dracula. So Dracula's origins straight back to Bram Stoker's book of the same name, which was a novel published in 1897. This romantic novel focuses on a lawyer, Jonathan Harker, who travels to a far country, Transylvania, in order to find a real estate deal with a nobleman by the name of Count Dracula. After a lot of creepy warning signs, including a lot of villagers at stakes and many, many howling wolves, Harker finds himself trapped in the castle with Count Dracula and is nearly attacked by three females he describes as vampires. The Count himself fends off these vampires, stating that Harker belongs to him. And I won't get into the entire story here, I suggest reading it, it's actually an amazing novel, but the important facts are that Stoker describes some vampire features in this novel, such as their quote-unquote, weaknesses to crosses, sunlight, them not appearing in mirrors, sleeping in coffins, and more. More information on the origins of vampires, however, comes from Bulgaria over a thousand years ago. The Slavic language translates vampire to roughly ghost monster, displaying them as undead creatures. These Slavic-named vampires didn't have physical bodies, similar to poltergeists. They did not bite people, nor did they convert any others to vampires. However, what they did do was spread disease throughout villages. In about 1686, when German-speaking people had taken over the Slavic lands, they learned the tales of the vampires, and the legends began to spread worldwide. By 1732, they appeared in English texts for the first time. As the vampire texts traveled westward, the descriptions of them began to change. They went from incorporeal beings to bodies, risen corpses. They gained the need to consume blood for survival. To people at the time, this fact made the tale a lot more believable, because at the time it was believed that blood was necessary for life force. Without your blood, you'd be dead obviously, but the reason that your heart, uh, the, the reason that your heart beat 
was because of the blood that was flowing through it. Intellectuals of the time thought that vampires were more of a disease than a supernatural occurrence and tried to explain them through science. The thought that vampires needed blood to restore their lost life temporarily is what finally sparked those like Stoker to spread information about them more, such as through his iconic novels. Now, to start talking about some real-life cases, we are starting off with Elizabeth Bathory. Elizabeth Bathory was born in 1560 in the Romanian region of Transylvania. At an early age, she was exposed to violent brutalities, public executions, hangings, you name it, she saw it. However, from also an early age, she showed symptoms of mental and genetic health issues. She was prone to seizures and had violent mood swings. Since she was born to a rather wealthy family, she was engaged at 13 to a man who was 18 from an equally wealthy Hungarian family. This man then took Bathory to his castle, where he introduced her to her soon-to-be favorite activity, torture. Together, the pair brutally tortured and harmed servants, children of servants, random strangers, really anybody they could find. When her husband died, Bathory continued the twisted practices and was eventually arrested on account of 80 murders. However, historians estimate that she had killed over 600 people during her lifetime. But what has made Bathory a vampiric legend is how she would fill tubs with the blood from her victims and then bathe in said blood. She believed that the blood would keep her youthful, hence the idea of blood as a rejuvenating means. Now I want to take us back to 1431, also in Transylvania, with Vlad III, Prince of Wallachia, and more commonly known as Vlad the Impaler, who was, a, who was notorious in the late 1450s and early 1460s for his truly gruesome means of fighting. To defend his homeland from the Ottoman Empire attacks, Vlad III took on the practice of impaling, where he fatally stabbed his enemies. It is estimated that Vlad III killed over 80,000 people, and rumors abound that he would dip his fingers into his victim's blood and proceed to drink the blood. Bringing him now all the way up to more recent times, Richard Chase, also known as the Vampire of Sacramento, was one of the many serial killers that ravaged the California area in the 1970s, but what set Chase apart were his truly disturbing methods of killing. Chase exhibited signs of severe mental illness as a young child, but his unsupportive, abusive household prevented him from getting real treatment for these issues. Instead, he turned to drugs and alcohol, the substances impairing his judgment even further. Chase was hospitalized in a mental facility when he was 25, where his already growing fascination with blood continued to grow. Hospital staff often reported seeing Chase attempt to drink the blood from dead birds. Against better judgment, Chase was released, and from 1977 to 1978, he killed six people and he drank each victim's blood. Bringing it once again back to the past, in 1725 in Serbia, thousands of people broke out in hysteria over the alleged disease following a vampire attack. In the following year, a second wave of disease spread all around the country and people began believing this to be the work of vampires. Wherever there was a vampire attack, there was sickness, and this became known as the Great Vampire Epidemic. Now I want to end on one that's bringing us all the way back to the 2000s. The reason I've decided to go back and forth within times is so that I hope that you guys can start to see some parallels between these cases. More so than just the whole drinking blood thing, there's also this idea of mental illness and, and confusion and paranoia that I'm hoping we're picking up on. Now, Alan Menzies from the UK brutally murdered and stabbed a man in December of 2002. When asked why he committed such an awful act, he simply cited that the vampire Akasha from the movie Queen of the Damned told him to. 
Queen of the Damned was released in February 2002, and it's based on the Anne Rice novel of the same name, and it follows the intersections between the vampire and human worlds. Menzies had apparently killed the man that fated day in December because said man had insulted the movie, thus triggering Menzies, who stabbed him over 40 times and drank his blood. Now, I know Arvind is just so elated to get to talking about all of his little skeptic theories relating to vampires, even though I never said that I actually do or do not believe in them. So Arvind, you may take it away. Perfect. Okay, let's just start with some broad things first. Realistically, if there were evil undead monsters roaming around that needed human blood to survive and could make humans into vampires with their bite, We'd all be vampires by now, or at least a vast majority of people would wake up with, like, a puncture wound on their neck. Not the minuscule amount of reports that we see right now. And all we really need to do is look at, look at the past history that we've seen and see that vampires were just beings used as scapegoats for when disease hit, in a time when diseases weren't properly understood. And that just developed into more tales, like the boogeyman under our beds and more. Now, on the specific um, instances that you talked about, with Bathory's story first, while very old, is honestly a lot of the details are probably true, but that doesn't necessarily mean that she's a vampire. Like what most people, and even scientists thought at the times, one's vitality came from their blood, so it's very plausible that she just bathed in blood to preserve her youth and wasn't necessarily a vampire. Like, you know, people would always chase the um, fountain of youth, and she just chased the fountain of blood. The same thing. Um, then you have Vlad the Impaler. Very similar reasoning here. But in addition, often in war times, people would spread like scary stories about their own generals to spook the other side. Because come on, who wants to fight the dude that's going to run you through and then make a smoothie out of you? Be realistic. On Chase's story, Chase's story just seems to point to the mental illness he suffered from a child leading to his disturbing behaviors and string of murder. Something we see with a lot of serial killers, um, most of which have some unique quirk to them that is terrible and gruesome in some way. I think this is just Chase's. Um, the vampire epidemic directly points to the Slavic legends that vampires were the ones that caused disease. So I feel like this can be naturally explained by the legend and people just associ associating any big sickness with like a vampire attack or a vampire epidemic. Um, and Menzi's story sounds more like a person defending themselves with the I was not in my right mind idea, similar to those who pretend to have behavior altering mental illnesses in order to get lighter sentencing in court. While this may not have been purposeful in this case and Menzi's may have had maybe a bad experience or a mental condition that could have caused this, I think it's doubtful that his crimes are the work of a vampire's influence. And on some more broad um, things about why vampires aren't real, because obviously they aren't, country living actually points to some reasons behind common clues that someone is supposedly a vampire. Um, today, some of the more prevalent vampire myths can be explained with science. The fear from long ago that the dead could still harm the living was only intensified when dead bodies were exhumed and, and appeared to have blood coming out of their mouths. Without understanding of how the body decomposes and what's known as purge fluid, it's easy to see how people could assume their loved ones had come back from the dead and that they were drinking people's blood. Many early skeletons from medieval times have been found with bricks or rocks filling their mouth or sickles around their necks, all, to, all the better to prevent those dead folk from rising up and attacking. Some people have also suggested that vampires are really just people who suffered from porifia, a condition that makes a person sensitive to sunlight. People with this disease are, are, are relegated to the indoors because exposure to light can lead to disfiguring blisters and more damage to their skin. Daily blood transfusions are sometimes needed as well. In a time of limited understanding, people were terrified that they could catch this condition from others. Maybe that could have led to a lot more of this spreading of vampire myths. But while vampires aren't real, there are those who just like to drink blood. And a 2015 survey conducted by the Atlanta Vampire Alliance found that there are at least 5,000 people in the United States who identify as real vampires. 
Although many people with blood fetishes actually call themselves sanguines, others identify as vampires and, like the fictional creatures, avoid sunlight and drink human blood from donors. The vampires from legends and stories are completely different from these people, though. They, uh, the, the legends very literally depict them stealing a person's life force as they suck their blood, not just drinking blood and avoiding sunlight. So, as we can see from all of this, vampires were a legend that just started back in the Slavic era and were spread westward by the Germanic people invading. And they, as, they, as the story evolved, more and more people began to think of them as real. But, unfortunately, or fortunately, in this scenario, they are not. There is some vampire listening to this episode right now. Absolutely <laughs> wounded at how you just dismissed their existence. <laughs> well, that vampire could technically just prove me wrong then. They're devastated. <laughs> I do, though, want to go back to that pop culture thing that I was talking about before, because I think there is something that's really interesting about how, like, in any form, in any way, vampires have just always been seen like this. You know, they've been used as horror elements, they've been used as sex symbols, they've been used as comedic characters. Like, any way that you could show someone, vampires have been shown. So in the early 1800s, revolutionary writers like Lord Byron and Mary Shelley used vampires as characters in their horror stories, lamenting their general theme of preying on people and drinking their blood. But it wasn't until 1929 when F.W. Murnau directed and wrote the iconic silent film Nosferatu that kind of really, you know, brought vampires back into our modern world. Now, Nosferatu is a leading movie not only in the horror genre, but just one of the most influential movies in cinematic history. This led to several dozen horror movies revolving around vampires, releasing all throughout the 1930s and 40s. In 1976, American Gothic writer Anne Rice published Interview with the Vampire, the first novel in her Vampire Chronicles series. This book was later adapted into a blockbuster film starring Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt, two what an iconic duo, and since then, vampires have been integral parts of every supernatural tale. Now, I know this is the one that you guys are excited for, okay? So just, I'm ready for it too, okay? With the new millennium came a new way of looking at vampires. And in 2005, Stephanie Meyer published Twilight, the first of four fantasy romance novels following vampires, werewolves, witches, and more. In 2008, Twilight was adapted into a movie with Robert Pattinson playing the lead vampire Edward Cullen. This marked the beginning of the sexualization of vampires, which we continue to see today. But I think there truly is no, no undead creature that we have highlighted as much as a vampire. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a very accurate take. Vampires have for sure been a very big focus in, I think, like Halloween, pop culture, everything as time has continued. Because I feel like it's just the most applicable. Like you can't. You like people can identify as vampires if they, you know, like like to, like the sanguines as before. They are different from vampires, but a lot of people will still confuse them for it. But like, you're not gonna confuse someone for the yeti, and no one's gonna identify as the yeti. Right. I think it's interesting that you called it applicable. I think that's a good way to put it in terms of like, well, this is one of the things you are making your skepticism points, um, which is, what do we think? qualifies a vampire it's like technically speaking it's like somebody who was gonna die like they're not necessarily dead yet but they and then somebody bites them and then like boom you're like a vampire but like technically you are dead but like you're still 
soul is still alive, I guess. Yeah. So it's like, just because you drink a lot of blood and have maybe particularly pointy not necessarily mean you are a vampire or does it does there actually not need to be that like undead aspect to it see but one of one of the things that i feel like needs to be there is the whole like they don't have a heartbeat that's the entire undead aspect because i feel like that's what really separates some like human identifying as a vampire and someone who could have really been turned into a vampire because you know, there's always conditions that could cause a lot of the things, like people who blister when they go into the sunlight, or I don't know, maybe one day there's going to be people who don't appear in mirrors anymore. I, I have no idea. <laughs> but, but like, if your heart is stopped, you're probably dead, or a vampire. The mirror thing I've always wondered in a way, though, like, what an odd thing <laughs> to come up with for a creature. Out of every 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 weird thing you could have them be, they're just like not appearing in mirrors. Is it like a point of insecurity? Like vampires just like don't want to look at themselves. Yeah, honestly, I think that makes a lot of sense. They're just too pale. Like, they just don't they're, want to see themselves. Right, they're too pale. Maybe they're blinded. Maybe their paleness <laughs> reflects off of the mirror, and then they just get blind. You know, technically, if they can, my my question was always, if they can turn into bats, because bats technically can't see, right? Can they mm, see true. when they're bats, or are they are they like bats that can see? That's a good question. That's a good question. We're gonna have to ask somebody on that. A vampire expert. If anyone knows <laughs> a lot about vampires, please contact us. Literally, we have a lot of stuff to talk about. That's that's. I mean, also in general. What are the benefits of being able to turn into a bat? You can fly. Like, if you fall off a cliff, I feel like it'd be kind of useful. And are you on <laughs> the fletches? Uh, okay, well, vampires also sleep upside down, right? So if you fall while you're sleeping upside down, then it's also useful. True. But also, like, this is where I think the biggest issue with vampirism as a whole which I think we'll see a lot with supernatural like endeavors in general is like the lack of consensus about what it means to be a vampire because like look, Cullen can't turn into a bat. <laughs> he can't do that. He just glistens in the sun. Like this is out of his, his, his capabilities. So it's like, and also right, like since technically anybody can be a vampire, like. There's just too many options, you know, because you have your people like Nosferatu, who's like bald and gross and got really long. And then you have people like Tom Hiddleston from the absolutely amazing movie Only Lovers Left Alive. That's like my fourth movie wreck of this episode, but it's a really good movie, guys. But it's like Tom Hiddleston. So, of course, he's going to be like a super hot vampire. Like, and Tilda Swinton, she's also a super hot vampire in the movie. Like, that's my point here. So, it's like, what is the criteria to become a vampire? Yeah, that's fair. You know, I think someone should put out, like, a national standard for, for vampirism. Right? Like, you have to be this tall. You have to look kind of like this. You have to have these. It's like, all right. And then also, you know, you keep the community more, like, protected. Because you know, like, who's in it, what, what the gist is. Because I'm thinking, right? like, what if Robert Pattinson actually is a vampire? What if... <laughs> Like they, he saw his agent was like, "Yo, Rob, like I got, I know it's kind of weird, but like you're gonna be a vampire." And he was like, "Say no more," 
This is, I, I've been ready for this my whole life. And then everybody in the vampire is like, dude, why did you do that? Like, the secret's out now, you know? Because Twilight led to a, a crazy raise of vampires. Yeah, that's like, maybe that's true. But then that would also mean, like, all of his roles, people, someone just has to comb through all of his roles and see if they can see any bit of, like, vampirism in them. True, like in the Batman, it's never sunny in that movie. Like there's, yeah. there's like, like like a bat. Li- oh my god, you're so right. You're literally so <laughs> right. This is him turning into. Yeah. <laughs> Every Batman has just been a vampire. <laughs> I see that. I see that so much. Like that. I that think. I think accurate. we're so onto something. <laughs> Okay, I I did a little bit of googling. Okay, and okay. here I found some some criteria for what should count as a vampire according okay. to Reddit Reddit user Blue Zephyr. You have to vampires should at least meet five of these to be a cool vampire. Okay. Bless Reddit. <laughs> Number one, a vampire must have a cape. It does not always need to be worn and can be substituted for a cape like trench coat on occasion. The cape should ideally remind you of bat wings. You Number know two. who has a cape? Batman. Batman. Uh-huh. Number two. A vampire should be able to transform. Bat or swarm of bats are preferable, but mist can also work, or a wolf. Just be able to transform, really. Okay, I feel like he, he has, like, gadgets and stuff. He can low-key transform. Batman. No, yeah, he, yeah I, I'm on it. He... Uh, so you have two. Three. Sunlight. It should kill or at the very least burn with extreme intensity. I mean, it doesn't yeah. seem like Batman's going out in the sun. Yeah, he always just just move in the night. Okay, Literally. so we have three, four. Human blood is required. Animal blood is not a substitute. Vampires are not just pasty dudes who like their steak really rare. If you want to be an ethical <laughs> vampire, you can go the blood pack route, but you run into some problems. Okay, I think this is one that doesn't really apply to Batman, but that's okay. Maybe mm-hmm. he just does it on the low. Right. All right. Five, sexual desire should be linked with your thirst for blood. Make it passionate. <laughs> uh, here's that Twilight influence. True. I mean, all, the thing is, though, right? Like, we don't personally know Batman. So, like, for those are things I'm assuming, like, his very close friends would know. Yeah, like, Alfred for sure has seen some of this. Right. I'm, so, I think, you know, I think it's safe to say that Batman is a vampire. Okay. And I'm talking yeah. like all Batmans. I'm talking, I'm talking Michael Keaton. I'm talking the Lego Batman. <laughs> all Batmans. Actually, yeah, no. I think number seven fully confirms this. A stake through the heart kills you. I feel like a sharp stake through the heart would just, just kill like any human. So True. <laughs> also, so yet again, like what a niche way, not niche, but like just like what a specific way to have to kill somebody. Like, <laughs> any way that you could have said to kill a vampire, like, that's what you chose? <laughs> you know what? They just, maybe just really like steaks. Maybe. Okay. Maybe. You know, if if only we could talk to Lord Byron and Bram Stoker and just really, really ask all these questions. Someone invented the time machine. We're going back. We're finding it. Dude, I would abuse the heck out of a time machine. 
Do you know what I would do if I had a time machine? What would you do if you had a time machine? I would go back to your absolute... I know they're your favorite. I know they're your favorite paranormal hunters of all time. I'd go back... Oh, my God. I'd go hang out with the Warrens, and I'd try to get in on some cases, you know? <laughs> I'd go in to see Annabelle. I'd go in to see, like, the Einfeld poltergeist. I'd, like... So you'd go in to and see, And then I'd, like, like come back. I'd, like... I'd, I'd, like, secretly take my phone so I could, like, get better and then I'd come back and then that's what we would talk about. Yeah, we're just gonna see a whole lot of nothing because nothing happened. Things did happen as I surely suspect they did. I guess we'll never know. I guess guess we'll never know. If you guys have a time machine out there, please leave us a message. (laughs) (laughs) Keep that alone. Don't tell anyone else. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Behind the Story. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Behind the Story with a period between the I and N. And on Twitter at Behind the Story with an underscore between the I and N. Be sure to come back in two weeks to learn about what happens to the, when the dead don't stay dead. Because as we all know, there's always more to uncover behind the story. See you next time.